My best friend's name is Russ. It's a friendship that spanned many years and miles. Uh, I've moved around to a whole bunch of different North American cities, but it's a friendship that's always remained constant. And that's primarily because of phone calls. Calls about life, family, sports, jokes, and pretty much everything else in between. So when I got home one night a number of years ago, there was an answering machine message from Russ. He had been glowing about a date he had just returned from. But I noticed something different in his voice. Something that was in contrast to what I usually heard when he would speak about dates he'd been on. Something in the inflection and the tone. So I just instinctively reached for my recorder and kind of haphazardly recorded the message. Basically forgetting about it immediately. Well, as the story goes, later he went on a second date, which turned into a relationship, which eventually turned into an engagement, and it began to dawn on me what I had. Somehow I had, bottled up in a digital audio file, the emotion, the feeling he experienced after that first date, a memory that they could both revisit with each listen. This week on the show, we're going to go back to square one. We're going to explore the origins of how we become able to capture sound in a recording. How significant is it that we're able to record music or sound and play it back over and over again? It's only been in the last handful of generations that we've been able to distill and bottle a magical musical performance on tape, to be able to transcend the space in which it was originally performed and then to play it on repeat, if we so choose. Prior to this, music existed solely in the time and space it was created, and often for some type of social purpose. Music was at family gatherings, at religious ceremonies, or just plain old concerts. So how does our ability to bottle up music, to be purchased, placed on a shelf, and revisited on a whim, how does this change and alter our perception of the music? And why do we need these artificial memories so much? Personally, I've listened to my favorite music album countless more times than I've watched a favorite movie. So today we'll be going back in time to look at those moments when recording sound became a reality. We're going to hear from Patrick Feaster, a lead researcher at Indiana University on the First Sounds collaborative team. It's a team of researchers who have been unlocking these first recordings that were bottled and preserved by the French scientist Edward Leon Scott de Martinville nearly 150 years ago using his invention, the phonautograph. We'll journey through the story of how cutting-edge technology was needed to store these sounds, and how after 150 years of silence, the latest technology was needed to play them for the first time. So here's the story of catching musical lightning in a bottle, this week on Cognitive Dissonance. My name is Edward Léon Scott de Martinville, and I invented the phonautograph in the year of our Lord, 1860. It was brilliant! Well, the phonautograph has been known about for quite some time. Pretty much any standard history of the phonograph will mention it. But typically, it'll be described as a kind of a dry piece of scientific apparatus, uh, something that was used by scientists to record 
maybe a few snatches of vowel sounds or organ pipes or you know, to compare the sound of a violin to the sound of an oboe, things like that. There was really very little uh, suggestion in any, anything that had been written about it that it was ever used for anything more interesting than that. So although people have realized for many years that in theory it should be possible to play back a phonautograph recording, there was never any real uh, excitement about uh, going out to find them because nobody really expected to find anything terribly interesting. The idea really was to build an artificial human ear. Uh, the inventor, Edward Leon Scott and Martinsville, had been proofreading a book on physiology and, and read an account of how the human ear worked, and he thought he could build something similar that instead of passing sound vibrations along to your brain, would just record them on a sheet of paper. So what he ultimately did was take a big funnel, like a megaphone, but in reverse, a little bit like a hearing trumpet, uh, and then you, he, he placed a membrane at one end of it so that sounds going into this funnel would be concentrated on this uh, membrane at the end and would, would cause it to vibrate just as uh, your eardrum would vibrate when you hear a sound. What it does is uh, vibrates a little stylus that he attached to the membrane. And the other end of the stylus rests on a sheet of paper wrapped around a cylinder that's covered with soot. Uh, the idea being that it, it will scrape away the soot very easily um, and leave a graph of the vibrations of the membrane over time as you ro rotate the cylinder. So basically what you get is a wavy line. When you shout into the membrane and the cylinder turns, the line will, will uh, wiggle back and forth. If there's no sound going in, then it'll just be a straight line. Claudette, Antoine, Jeremiah, uh, Bethune, please, okay. Now on three. One, two, three! No, no, you fools, you fools! Uh, you don't start until they say row, row, row your boat. Okay, now let's try this again. No, not over there. Sing into the end that looks like a big bell. How, how would you even describe it? Because it's not, it's, uh, from what I read, it's not even a, a physical recording like we're used to, like tape or something. It's, a, it's actually a picture, is it not? Well, it is a picture. But the type of inscription we're talking about really is the same as a, a groove on an LP. Uh, if you looked at it under a microscope, what you'd see really is just a wiggly line that moves back and forth uh, and then spirals around the disc. A phonautogram is the same type of inscription. It's really a graph, one dimension is time, which could be you know, the disc turning, could be a cylinder turning. The other dimension is changes in amplitude, just changes in air pressure. So really, the, these, these white lines on uh, black backgrounds, these phonautograms, are the same type of document that we're dealing with later on when we have an LP or a 78 RPM recording or a cylinder. It's just that in this case, it's not uh, a groove, it's, it's a, a line, just a two-dimensional thing. So there was really no mechanical way of playing them back. Think 
about the possibilities. We can, we can take the audio, we can take the sound, and we can see the sound with our eyes on the paper. It takes the sound through the smoke, puts it on the paper. I don't think you're following me here. The sound goes through the machine onto the paper. Then we can see it. Then we can see it with our very eyes. You don't, you don't get it. Okay, I'll try again. Sound. While researching Leon Scott in the phonograph, my mind kept returning to a familiar phrase. It's like trapping lightning in a bottle. What Leon Scott inadvertently stumbled upon was the idea of capturing a succession of moments in time. Take them, bottle them up, listen to them over and over, place them on a shelf, rediscover them when you need them. With the concurrent technology of photography being developed, the relationship with memories had suddenly become non-linear. Suddenly we could capture moments. Moments of music, of theater, of love letters, of presidential addresses put them on the shelf to be looked at, listened to, and reconnected with. But unlike a photograph, which documents a single moment in time, the phonograph, with its hand-cranked cylinder, was achieving something greater. It was attempting to capture a string of moments. To hear the first recordings of Eau Claire de la Lune in 1860 is to place yourself in the room in which they were recorded way back when. And something emergent happens you can connect with the exact moment the recording took place. It's no wonder that these recordings are often described as sounding like ghosts, an ethereal presence of the past visiting the present. It's fascinating uh, that the, this con was a construction of an artificial ear, but am I right in saying that he had no intention of using this as playback? Like, he just wanted to document these sounds. Exactly. There was no idea at the time of playing these recordings back. That just was not part of the plan at all. What Scott was hoping would happen is that once there was time to study these inscriptions, uh, people would learn to read them. And there was really no reason to uh, think otherwise at the time. Nobody had really tried to read one of these waveforms before. Let's say it's late at night. You don't want to disturb your aunt who's sleeping in the next corridor, but you still want to listen to Beethoven. Here's what you do. You don't listen to Beethoven. You read Beethoven silently by watching the sound on the page. For example, let's say yeah, you're at a wedding and it's very boring. These people, they should not be getting married. Uh, the, the man is obviously not, not very interested. Well, you can just open up a book full of sound and listen to a much better wedding that we have been visiting with the machinery and we have recorded it with the black smoke it got on the lady's dress but that doesn't matter because we have the sounds don't you i ah uh, no you don't no you don't get it 
and the, really this is the same type of image that we deal with all the time today when we use uh, audio editing software, audio editing software, audio editing software. You see a wavy line pop up on a screen. You, uh, you can edit, edit it, uh, look at it. You can see the loud parts, the quiet parts. Uh, some people can learn to recognize the actual wave shapes to some extent. So he, he thought eventually, once there was time to study these, uh, that people could learn to read them to sit down in the comfort of your own home with a, maybe a book with these waveforms in it, uh, where you could sit and uh, you wouldn't hear these being reproduced, but sort of in your mind's ear, you could reimagine a, a, a great performance of uh, an actor on stage or a great singing of an operatic aria. So really the same type of material, but you would, uh, you'd read it uh, visually rather than hearing it. That's incredible. Now, it really isn't possible to do exactly what Scott was hoping to do. I at least am not aware of anybody who has the ability to look at a waveform of speech and make out any words. Uh, really, it was with the invention of the sound spectrograph that uh, that really became possible to make an automatic inscription of speech that you could learn to read visually. At that point, you're not graphing uh, time versus amplitude anymore. It's time versus frequency, so it's an entirely different thing. Uh, one explanation for the, uh, the waveform that I've heard that I sort of like is that trying to read that is a little bit like trying to figure out the pattern in a rug from looking at the individual lines as they come off the loom. It's just an entirely uh, scrambled way of looking at the, the information. One of the ironies of life is that sometimes our greatest inventions are just merely a byproduct of a much larger, yet often unachievable vision. In his lifetime, Edward and Leon Scott de Martinville may have spent countless hours reading, writing, and tinkering with his phonograph to be able to demonstrate his seemingly ludicrous goal of reading audio. But it's the passage of time and the results of concurrent work of inventors inspired by and in competition with Leon Scott but it's time that has colored his name and these ideas. that there was a bit of a conflict in Leon Scott's mind about uh, Edison and him being kind of billed as the first uh, recorder of sound um, that he kind of took to his grave. Uh, did he get any kind of credit? Oh, sure. First of all, I should make it clear, Thomas Edison's accomplishment is 
by no means diminished by any of this. Uh, he was still the first person to play back a recorded sound. Scott was recognized in his time for having first recorded sound, but at the time, or at least first tried to record sound in, in this general method of, of you know, causing a membrane to vibrate and, and creating a wavy line from that, people recognized that he had been the first to try to do that, but nobody at the time was really sure how successful he'd been. Sure, you had these pictures of wavy lines, but you never really knew for sure what he'd captured. Uh, it was really only once we were able to play these back and hear recognizable sounds of speech, tunes, and so forth, that we really were able to verify, yes, he did record sound successfully enough to play it back and recognize what he had done. That was something he never really lived to discover. And uh, he did feel embittered, uh, largely because Edison's... Uh, Phonograph drew so much more attention than his had. Uh, it was uh, much easier to understand what was happening with the phonograph. You didn't just end up with this peculiar graphing of sound. You actually got to hear sounds played back from inscriptions. Have you all heard about Edison's invention? What? What, what do you mean? I believe he's recorded sound. That's, that's preposterous. He didn't invent that. He just stole it from me. I was recording sound 30 years ago. You buffoon. Don't you, you ignoramus. What are you, some one of his cronies? Did he send you here to try and to try and make fun of me? To try and put me down? What do you think this is? Do you know who Edison is? He's a hack. He's, he's a tomfool, gankering scooge of a baluga whale. I cannot believe that you could come here to my face and try to push this on me. It was... I, I just don't know. Well, tell me, good sir, why have I never heard of you then? Maybe because you haven't been looking at the sounds. Uh, he he really did feel, though, that Edison was on the wrong track. Uh, it wasn't just that he hadn't thought of playback. He really didn't think that was the goal. And there's something to be said for this. Uh, many of the uses of the phonograph that came up very early on in, in the history of speculation into it required transcription. Uh, the phonograph was supposed to be used for business dictation. You dictate a letter into it and uh, then somehow get a letter out of it. <clears throat> but if playback was your approach, then you had to have a, a secretary transcribe it later on. Scott's idea was that you'd go directly into some kind of a written document. And uh, Edison's phonograph, he figured, just didn't quite do what it was supposed to, after all. So he went to his grave not merely bitter at Edison's recognition, but also feeling that things were really going in the wrong direction. It reads like a variation on the old riddle. If a 19th century French scientist records sound on a piece of paper, but no one's able to listen to it, is it really a sound? 
Perhaps the most notable parallel between Leon Scott de Martinville and the First Sounds researchers is that each were presented with a seemingly impossible audio task. Leon Scott had to invent technology to encode sound into his papers, and modern day researchers need to be able to use current digital technology to decode the audio. On the surface, it very much appears to be a collaboration that seems to defy space and time. Well, with a vinyl disc or a wax cylinder or a compact disc, there's a, a mechanism for getting the sound back out of it. Uh, in the case of a, an LP, for instance, there's a groove that can guide a stylus along, and that, uh, that physical movement of the stylus is, is what then gets turned into sound. In the case of the CD, it's being read optically. Uh, in this case, we just had to find a way of uh, taking a wavy line and uh, making that operate a playback mechanism. Just there are a few more steps in between. The problem, of course, being that it was just a, a picture. It's uh, just that there was no real good physical way of getting it out until digital technology made that possible. First Sounds as a whole is, is a sort of an informal collaboration among people who uh, are interested in, in these challenges. And uh, some of the people who are involved in that and who have been most uh, crucial to actually turning those inscriptions into sound are Carl Haber and Earl Cornell at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Uh, they had been working on and are still working on uh, methods of playing back more conventional types of sound recordings optically rather than using a, a stylus that actually contacts the surface which is advantageous if you think about uh, the risks in playing back very fragile sound recordings, uh, wax cylinders and the like. Uh, they've been developing a method of using light uh, rather than a stylus to play those. And so it was a fairly logical extension to go from that, uh, playing a groove optically, to playing uh, simply a light line on, on a dark surface using the same general approach. They call it a virtual stylus, but essentially what they're doing is tracking this white wavy line across a black surface and calculating where its position is at each point and then translating that into a digital sound file. was trying to study, uh, as he writes, the, the timbre of the cornet, that is, to see what it is that makes a cornet sound different from a human voice or an oboe or a guitar or whatever else he might try to record. And in uh, working on one of these recordings, I noticed that there seemed to be sequences of eight, well, I'm not sure what to call them, eight blats on the cornet. 
the speed is very irregular, so you can't really uh, tell what the notes were. But the fact that there are sequences of eight of them uh, suggests that he may have been recording a scale over and over again, which is so far um, consistent with the evidence that we've sorted through. Uh, not an absolute clear case yet, but um, we have gone through and adjusted the speed as though this uh, recording was of ascending cornet scales. And it's, it sounds pretty plausible. It certainly sounds very much like a cornet. challenge now is to try to, you know, working through all the evidence that we have, um, spectrographic analyses, repetitive cranking speed patterns because if you if you turn a cylinder by hand there's a certain pattern to the irregularities it tends to speed up and slow down in a kind of a regular pattern if we pull all of these different pieces of evidence together and it still points in the direction of scales then i suspect we may be able to uh, correct the speed on that and, and come up with a, a fairly plausible recording of someone playing scales on a cornet from 1857. Of course, we'd have to figure out tunings for cornets in 1857, which may be a little bit tricky, but uh, I think there's a lot of hope. First of all, it's not absolutely clear right now what counts as the earliest recording of sound. We have a bunch of recordings that Scott made when the phonautograph was fairly mature uh, in 1860. Uh, at this point, uh, remember that this was a hand-cranked machine so that the speed of rotation varies quite a lot. So if you play the waveform straight off the sheet of paper, uh, what you get sounds something like this. To the point that something like a melody is, is uh, not discernible. But as of 1860, he was recording a tuning fork next to the voice track. And the tuning fork, as you know, is always going to vibrate at the same frequency. So by adjusting you know, every five waveforms or so to the same width, and then uh, doing the voice track at the same time, we can correct for these speed fluctuations. So in 1860, we have recordings of Eau Claire de la Lune. Uh, we have uh, recitation from uh, Othello by Ducey. We have uh, the song Vol Petite Abeille.
all sound very convincingly like what he says they were recordings of. Hmm. So in that case, uh, we're, we're quite confident these are real recaptured sounds from the year 1860. People's response to the songs and speeches that we've recaptured so far have, have been interesting. Uh, many people uh, find them charming as this very intimate relationship that you, you can suddenly have to someone in the year 1860, with eavesdropping on them singing. Uh, people find it both charming on the one hand and, and a little bit uh, spooky on the one hand, too. People often say that they find a, a the experience of hearing such an old voice a bit chilling. So what goes through your mind when you're you're thinking that this is like possibly the first ever recording of sound? Has, I'm sure this had to have gone through your head at some point. Hearing those for the first time was really a stunning experience. I mean, specifically, I was was sitting there the night after I got this raw sound file uh, from um, our collaborators at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. I was doing the speed correction over the course of the night, uh, this was, was on Eau Claire de la Lune, and it was probably about two or three o'clock in the morning that I finally got the whole thing done. I just didn't think I could go to sleep with a, an iron that hot in the fire. Uh, but so it was yeah, probably around three o'clock in the morning when I finally heard this voice restored to uh, the original speed of recording, so it's not just wobbly, you can actually hear the melody of Eau Claire de la Lune, and I just sitting there thinking to myself, my God, I'm listening to the voice of somebody singing a song before the American Civil War. And uh, when you do a lot with early recorded sound, you get a little bit spoiled in terms of you know, not thinking it's such a big deal to hear a voice from, say, the year 1900 or 1895. But this was just so much earlier than anything I'd ever heard before that uh, it really was a somewhat uncanny experience. take for granted that sound is recordable. A lot of our lives are enmeshed in these, these documents of recorded sound that are all around us, and I assume that's going to be the case into the future. But when we look backwards, these are really going to be the first examples of that anywhere. So that uh, much as with written language, we can 
go back to ancient Egypt, ancient Sumer, uh, clay tablets, hieroglyphic inscriptions. And those are really the earliest writings uh, that we can reach back to. That these similarly will be the earliest recorded sounds. Uh, and, and what people will, will make of all this is, is really, I think, yet to be seen.